Healing is an unending process, and, and that's okay. You're not alone. You can come back from anything. You know, you can hit rock bottom and still make something beautiful out of it. We are given a choice in those dark moments, in the moments of tragedy. Will you choose to allow it to make you stronger, or will you choose to allow it to break you beyond repair? One of the most beloved guests in the history of this podcast is ultra runner Tommy Rives. What he learned from a near-fatal brush with a rare form of lung cancer and his remarkable return to both life and sport has and continues to touch millions of people. Yeah, I'm just stoked that I'm just still around, you know. If you count yourself among those impacted by his powerful story so beautifully told, then you are going to love Steph Kachadal, an equally soulful, gifted writer who shares her life and the experience of almost losing her husband, Tommy, in her stunning and very intimate New York Times bestselling memoir, Everything All at Once. This conversation is really about all the big things. It's about trauma and grief and suffering. It's about faith. It's about rebellion. But it's also about how to recognize gratitude, love, and beauty amid the tragedy while also holding space for emotions like pain, anger, and sorrow. In other words, how to allow everything all at once. I was very moved by Steph's book. Her openness and vulnerability in this conversation is powerful. I think you'll find it quite impactful. Uh, and it's all coming up. So uh, here we go. This is me and Steph Kachadal. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because, unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. 
It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful. And recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Steph, it's so nice to meet you. I've been looking forward to this for such a long time. So welcome to the show. I can't wait to get into your life, this fantastic new book that is now a New York Times bestseller. Congratulations, yeah, that's amazing. Uh, everything all at once. The process of writing it, I'm interested in what that was like for you and if you had any additional sort of discoveries about yourself in life as a result of, of, of doing that, that perhaps you wouldn't have had short mm -hmm. of the writing itself. Yeah. Um, writing this book was really, really difficult for me. Um, I, I had to heal. Well, it's an ongoing process. I was healing from the trauma of what happened to me in real time as I was writing. So I think that's why the book is so raw. And um, because I was still in that emotionally raw state when I was writing it, I was deeply depressed when I was writing it as well. I mm -hmm. feel like it was the come down from this post-traumatic stress, you know, experience that I was having. And I think that comes out in the pages. And even when I read it now, I can't access that same depth of emotion. Right. And I think I had to write it in that state um, for it to be as true as it was when mm. I was writing it. Yeah. I would suspect five years from now, 10 years from now, you may reflect back on it and have a different relationship with it Absolutely. or experience. And I think the process of then putting a book out into the world means that you sit down with people like me and you talk a lot about what's in the book. And, mm -hmm. and I think that in and of itself then continues to inform your own kind of journey of self-understanding. Like it will mm -hmm. continue to reveal newer and newer layers of that. Yeah, well, what I'm, one of the, the most important things that I'm learning and, and learned throughout writing the book is, is that healing 
is never ending. It's it's an unending process, and and that's okay. And and there's no finality in my book because I was realizing there's no finality to grief. Or mm-hmm. um, and and I'm sure I'll look back on this book, like you said, in five and ten years, and kind of look back on myself with almost like a childlike fondness. You know that that I was that I was so new in my healing. Yeah. And I think that's a beautiful thing to accept that we're just all on this healing journey and there's no, there's no final destination, yeah. you know, it's just ongoing. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful and healthy response yeah. to it. This book is actually an extrapolation of an earlier book mm-hmm. that you were writing about you confronting and, and making peace with and, and healing the experience of losing your father mm-hmm. to lung cancer a story that you thought was complete at the time. <laughs> and it was only through what happened with Riz that you realized like that was just, you know, sort of pre-intermission, yeah. right? Yeah. And the story still had, 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 you know, much to tell you. I think if you had put that book out um, prior, you would have missed the magic uh, and, and all the messiness and the pain, of course, uh, of what you, uh, of what you experienced that now gives you kind of a gravitas mm-hmm. to share from a new level. And the narrative of the book is structured such that you toggle back and forth between that original story, which is kind of a, a, a linear chronology of your life mm-hmm. peppered in between with chapters about what is going on with Rivs and how that reflects upon experiences you had as a younger yeah. person. Yeah, well, that first half of the book, so all of the even chapters are, um, the roughly the book that I wrote um, from one the past decade, and I actually finished that version of the book, and I called it "This Is Where I Leave You," mm. because I actually thought that I was leaving my grief behind. That that grief was something that could be left behind, and um, I felt like as though I had finished grieving the death of my father, which now to me is, is just really interesting, or even comical that I thought that you can finish grieving. And when Rivs got sick, that narrative obviously got cracked wide open. And um, one of the most impactful things that I learned about myself is that I hadn't finished grieving the death of my father because mm-hmm. you never finish grieving. And and in order to truly accept the wholeness of myself, I had to accept that that void left by my father's death would always be there and and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And and then it became what tools do you use to to fill that void that are not self-destructive. And that's that's the journey I'm on now currently. I'm yeah. still real time. I I'm that's where I'm at because I I learned that to accept that that hole or that void inside of me and now I'm trying to figure out ways to to not fill it but to just deal with it. Um, in 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 more productive ways. Yeah, you're a seeker. You know, you're somebody who, at a very early age, was looking for answers mm-hmm. in in lots of different ways. Not all, not always so healthy, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you know, ran away from home at 16. There's drugs and alcohol involved. Um, you grappling with your relationship to being raised Mormon and what does spirituality mean? What does prayer mean? Things like this. Yep. Um, you were always looking for answers. Um, and I think part of this narrative is that you're running away mm-hmm. in the searching, right? Mm-hmm. You yep. think you're running towards answers, but you're actually running away from what's right in front of you, which is confronting 
the truth of your father's passing and what that meant to you and how that affected you and and trying to figure out you know what does god mean and what what is what is what is my purpose and all these sort of unprogramming you know some of the the um the dogma that was instilled mm-hmm. in you from a religious perspective as a young person and it required what happened to Rivs in mm-hmm. order for you to stop because you couldn't turn away yeah. for the first time in your life and you had to confront it. Mm-hmm. And it's just fucking crazy because mm-hmm. your dad passes from lung cancer mm-hmm. and then Rivs gets lung yeah. cancer. I mean, you cannot no. script this no. or make this up. Yeah, It's like this insane like <laughs> collision yeah. of you know truth mm-hmm. that the universe conspired to yeah. put in your path in order for your own self-discovery mm-hmm. and, and growth. Yeah, well, I, there's a part in my book where um, we, I think it'd been two days since we got Riv's final diagnosis, which was the lung cancer. And I was with my sister and we were just floating in an Airbnb pool, kind of in this purgatory of waiting for me to be able to visit Riv's in the hospital. And I said the words aloud. I said, my husband has fucking lung cancer. And we just laughed and laughed and laughed. It was just this cathartic, just recognizing this cruel irony um, that, like you said, just almost like the universe just shaking Mm -hmm. me saying, you need to learn this lesson. And I don't necessarily think that things happen for a reason. I I don't like to think that my dad died for a reason or that ribs got sick for a reason. I think that's dangerous territory Mm -hmm. for me personally. But looking back, I can assign meaning to what happened for my own self. Yeah, that's a choice. Yeah, that's the choice I made was to say, my dad died. Um, That was just purely tragic. But from his passing and from the response that his grief made me feel in the ways that I acted, taught me better and equipped me to better deal with my husband's Mm. diagnosis and then my husband's diagnosis in turn in the cyclical nature helped me heal from my father's passing right and so it was this in very very it felt like this cosmic um I, i felt like i was on a train and everything that was happening during that year and a half was a stop that I was supposed to get off at and then get back on the train. Mm-hmm. That's how it felt. Right, with the question, where is the opportunity mm-hmm. for yep. my own personal evolution mm-hmm. in all of this in the yep. midst of the chaos and the pain and mm-hmm. everything else? Mm-hmm. And I think also what we talked about me searching for um, for answers and searching for meaning, I during my adolescence and everything in the wake of my father's death, what I came to find was that I had been searching outside myself for this placation or for the answers. Don't we all? I mean, of course, yeah. but, and, and especially cause I was raised Mormon. And so mm-hmm. I was taught that power lives outside of us, that we submit to the power. And I think that's good in some ways cause it brings humility and, you know, lessening of the ego. But, but what I found was that I held the power inside of me and then I could find the healing and it wasn't an outside source. It was, it was mm-hmm. innate in me. I was born with that power and it was just learning how to access it. And, and it was love that taught me that. Yeah. The first stop being Mormonism and the final stop on that train tour being ribs, mm-hmm. thinking that the answers that you were seeking yeah. could be found in this relationship mm-hmm. with this extraordinary human being. And not until um, the kind of frailness, uh, you know, of of his physical self became evident. 
were you able to understand that he he was not your solution mm-hmm. either yeah. right that it was it's between you and you yeah and that was that was a really sad reckoning because it wasn't until he was sedated and in a coma essentially that i realized that i had been blaming him for a lot of my deficiencies because he didn't heal me mm-hmm. he didn't make me whole therefore there was something wrong with him and i only as i was sitting by his bed was i realizing how many how many moments and events I had blamed him for when it was really all my responsibility. My happiness was only mine. He couldn't give me that happiness, right. that wholeness. And I had been blaming him. And, and part of this urgency of wanting him to wake up was for me to apologize for saying, I'm sorry, I expected you to heal me. What mm-hmm. an untenable demand, you know, like right. how, but I think a lot of us do that. I, and I think that came from the wound of my father's death of this of this, you know, feeling like you need to stay here because you're going to replace my dad, you know, right. which is... <laughs> and thinking that you had resolved that grief and mm-hmm. overcome that trauma only to discover that you hadn't, mm-hmm. right? Yep. I've been thinking a lot about that. That's beautifully said. Um, and I, again, I made some notes that I, that I want to share. So I'm going to refer to them. Um, I was thinking about what you just said Uh, And also reflecting on a recent personal experience that I had, and I posted this thing on social media yesterday about trauma. And I said, I'm convinced that one of, if not the most important keys to living well requires redress and healing of past past or Mm -hmm. childhood traumas. Basically arresting the dysfunctional behaviors that we've inherited by our ancestry that recur unconsciously and reactively adopting new healthier ways of living and instilling these more adaptive patterns as default settings in the next generation is a most worthy and esteemable pursuit and the path to freedom. And as I think about your story and thinking about the many ways in which you were kind of running away from yourself and Mm -hmm. your pain through religion, prayer, geographics, drugs, you're dabbling with sobriety and AA and Mm -hmm. psychedelics, but the truth and, and ultimately the lie is that this solace that you end up experiencing and believing that everything you were looking for, you you end up finding in ribs, mm-hmm. right? This empath, mm-hmm. to use your own phrase, yep. this very sensitive human being mm-hmm. um, who's kind of like from an outsider's perspective, almost like a bodhisattva-like figure. (laughs) You know, he's incredibly charismatic. He's larger than life. He's very strong and and seemingly invincible, Mm -hmm. this protector. But he also exudes this really beautiful quality of love and, you know, benevolence Mm -hmm. and and kindness that um, ends up not just comforting you, but comforting a lot of people. Uh, But that is very bright sunlight, Mm -hmm. right? That ends up, that power ends up eclipsing your own power and ultimately mm-hmm. yeah. works at cross purposes with your own growth. It prevents and delays you from confronting yourself, confronting your past. It arrests your healing. It keeps you disconnected. Mm-hmm. And you can choose to uh, believe or, or um, perceive in this whole experience that on some level, his disease is this gift that mm-hmm. he's giving you for your own evolution. Because finally, like I said earlier, you can't, for the first time, you can't run away. Mm-hmm. You're compelled to confront your past and heal it and, and ultimately become whole. And in the telling of this story in this book, you are passing this on. Mm-hmm. 
you're not only passing it on in the way that you're parenting your daughters so that they don't sort of inherit the same behavior response to trauma that you did, Mm -hmm. but by sharing it with your words, you have this vehicle to empower other people, which is just, you know, like that's it, man. Mm. Like that's the shit, right? That's what we're here to do. We're here to grow, evolve, and then share what we learned along the way. It's still a a daily practice though. It's not as though I figured it out because Mm -hmm. I wrote this book and therefore I am now healed from codependency and, you know, all of these things that I still have to make a conscious choice to not let the trauma child inside me act out because she's still there. We never get rid of our trauma selves, I don't think. Um, But accepting and recognizing that that's what's causing us to act out in certain ways is liberating for me because mm-hmm. then I can I can feel her yelling and being insecure and then I can recognize her rather than just pretend it's someone else's problem. Um, and and so that's that's a daily practice that I am trying to work at is hearing my trauma self and then acting in a way that's not blaming or destructive. Mm-hmm. But that's part of everything, you know, all at once, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. It's the yep. it's the full spectrum of emotions yep. and learning how to be in a place of self-acceptance with those rather mm-hmm. than trying to hold yourself up to some perfectionist standard of how you're supposed to respond yeah. to a difficult situation. Absolutely. And not fighting against it. I think I felt I I tried so hard my whole life to fight against depression, fight against anxiety, to to battle it and push it away. And it isn't until I'm beginning now to just allow it and accept it mm-hmm. and almost make it my friend and, and my teacher and my companion that I'm able to move forward rather than staying stuck in the same patterns. Yeah. And that might've come across in some of those AA meetings you yeah. went to when you were in your early yeah, 20s right? or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Surrender, acceptance. Yeah, surrender. I yeah. mean, but that's the thing is, and, and also what I'm learning is that truth is found everywhere. You know, truth is found in the Mormon religion and in AA and in psychedelics. It's found everywhere. It's just, you find your avenue that resonates most with you. Mm-hmm. And, but we're all saying the same thing. We're all saying the same thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And and I think that's that's beautiful when you can recognize that we're all just little trauma kids trying to trying to heal in this yeah. life. Yeah, it's your story is unique to you and yet it's kind of the oldest story. Mm-hmm, it's like mm-hmm. I ran around the world looking for answers yeah. only to arrive back home and realize they were within me yeah, all the time. Yeah, I mean you know? it is. It, <laughs> yeah. And that that's what it, it's it, I feel like pain is universal, but we experience it so personally and it feels mm-hmm. so personal to us and part of the reason I wrote this book was I wanted people to know that you're not alone. Like I I gave every greedy detail to let people know that whatever they're doing to cope with their their tragedy or their trauma, that it, if, if they could use it as a vehicle to self-improvement, then you can come back from anything. You know, you can hit rock bottom like I more or less did and, and still make something beautiful out of it. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to, you know, navigate the challenges of a loved one who's succumbing to cancer and it's another thing entirely to do that under the public eye. Mm-hmm. Like you're both, you and your husband are both mm-hmm. people who are sort of well known. Um, and I'm wondering how that impacted how you were dealing with it privately, and then 
realizing like there's a public out there that wants to be apprised of what's happening mm-hmm. moment by moment and the tension between trying to protect your family and and you know navigate a very personal thing with the demands of people that are in some kind of parasocial relationship yeah. with you that you've never met. Yeah. Well, and I think that was heightened by the fact that it was COVID. So everyone was right. isolated and lonely and living virtually. So everyone was in these parasocial relationships at the time. And so um, I think that just heightened and intensified the connection people felt with our story. Um, there was It was double-edged, I would say. For On one hand, the the love and support that we got from people around the world really was a saving grace. It really did make me feel far less lonely in a very lonely time when mm-hmm. I was quarantining and away from my friends. And um, and at the same time, there was this this expectation that that their their love bought a ticket to our lives. Mm-hmm. And and I wasn't willing to share everything because some things were too sacred to share. And also Rivs is a very, very private person. And I knew, even though he was unconscious, I knew he wouldn't want me to be taking pictures and sharing them online. Right. I never once took, shared a picture of him sick. Um, I knew that when he, and if he woke up, he could tell the story how he wanted to. And that's why I chose to tell it only from my emotional self. I didn't really give many medical updates. I mostly gave emotionally mm-hmm. updates because that felt that felt respectful. Right. And the writing that you share on Instagram predates Riv's illness. I mean, mm-hmm. this is something you've been doing for a long time. And, you know, there's lots of people out there who fell in love with you simply for your way with words. Mm. Uh, so the book in many ways is just an extrapolation of that talent. It was only a matter of time before you wrote a book, mm, yeah. <laughs> whatever it was gonna be about. <laughs> I was already writing um, one, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and there's a, you know, there's a, a, a Zen Cohen-like sort of flair to some of your posts, but they're always very sort of layered and deep and thoughtful and honest. Mm. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, I think there's this, before Ribs got sick, mm-hmm. there's this sort of perception of of an idealized life, right? Mm-hmm. He's got this extraordinary physique. He's super handsome. He's just an athletic machine. You're very beautiful. You have these beautiful daughters. Mm-hmm. And the projection is one of maybe not perfection, but an aspirational life. Yeah. And then suddenly, you know, that crashes into a wall. Um, and you're faced with, you know, I don't know if this is anything you even think about, mm. but I'm just wondering, you know, as somebody, as an outsider looking in, like, wow, people are are projecting onto you mm. a version of your life that isn't reality. Yeah. Then do you feel a responsibility to disabuse people of that or to try to communicate with people in a way that still is providing them with something um, like teachable moments or, or something aspirational yeah. out of what you were enduring in real time. Yeah, well, the, the truth is the the couple years before Ribs got sick were probably some of the hardest years of for us personally and in our marriage. He was injured in the Houston Marathon, He so he couldn't run. And when Ribs can't run, he gets very dark. Yeah. And, uh-huh. and as, I mean, we're just a normal married couple. We got married when I was 22 years old and he was 23. We were just babies. And so we had to learn to grow up together and we did not do it perfectly. And I think people have this idea that 
we've figured it out because he's able to, he was able to, you know, reach his goal of being a career athlete. And Mm -hmm. I was able to reach my goal of being a a writer, but it did not come without many struggles and many fights and many resentments that we still work through now. Um, and so to hear people say that, you know, we, we seem like we're the ideal couple or that we're couple goals. We hate, we cringe when people say couple goals only because we're not, we're definitely not like we've, but what we do well is we encourage each other's independence and we've always done that. And I think that for us is really important because we are both very um, lone wolf independent people. And mm-hmm. I think that's what brought us together in the first place. Um but I never felt a sense of duty to the public to um, to give off any particular, um, I don't know, like image of who we were. I just, I'm sorry if we gave off the image that we were perfect because we're definitely not. No, I'm not saying it was intentional on <laughs> yeah, your part. Exactly. But no, I but that's, yeah, exactly. No, but that's, yeah. It's easy to sort of like extrapolate Absolutely. from that, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and Rivs especially really really doesn't like that. I, I, I'm very, um, passive. Like I don't dwell on, on things as much as he does. He is a definitely a deep, deep thinker, as you know. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and he's always thinking about what will people garner from this. And, um, and so we're trying to now kind of, um, deconstruct the notion that, that we are this, I don't know, perfect couple that have it figured out. On an almost, sort of mythic level though, when I think about Riz and, you know, to your point of him being this empath and being a very sensitive person. And even you write about this in the book, the fact that he, you know, he needs to go out into nature mm-hmm. and and engage with solitude so that he can ground himself mm-hmm. and, you know, process like all the energy yeah. that he takes on from from everyone around him. It's almost like he's a, he's a cleanser for yeah. others, right? Yeah. And I can't help but think, like in this sort of archetypal way, you know, the the illness, the illness that 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 he got, mm-hmm. like is was this because like he reached his max mm. in his ability to kind of yeah. process, you know, other people's toxicity. And he was yeah. he was doing it, you know, in a selfless way for others. Yeah. Well, he always talks about it as a gift and a curse, and mostly a curse, that his ability to absorb other people's emotions. Because to to the person that he's helping, obviously it's a gift, but he doesn't know how to metabolize that right. emotion other than running. And so when he doesn't get to run again, it just sits in him. And he always says, I feel like I'm rotting. Um, and, and I think that's really, really heavy for him. And, and then to be partnered with someone like that, you you do need to understand their need to be alone for hours and hours at a time. And that was part of my learning experience as a 22-year-old newly married to say, why does my husband want to be gone six or seven hours a day? And it took me a long time to realize that, that he needs that because mm-hmm. he is, like you said, this archetypal figure that he is quite literally healing himself and others. And when he got sick, I I felt this acute, just realization that the sickness was not purely pathological. There was an element of um, the the stress and the emotion that he had been absorbing was was making him mm-hmm. sick, mm-hmm. and his inability to run was causing that. And I, I don't know. I'm not saying with certitude that you know stress made 
gave him cancer, but I think there was a component to that. And so a lot of times when he was in the coma, I would try to tell him as best I could to just let it go, just to release what he could because it wasn't his to bear. And um, I think that was all part of his healing. Yeah, the healing being multifaceted Mm -hmm. on the one hand, um, you know, what is the opportunity for him, Mm -hmm. right? Perhaps there are other ways for him to process all of this Mm -hmm. outside of running. And there's an opportunity for him to explore some other modalities. Um, There's an opportunity for him to figure out how to have some healthy boundaries. So Mm -hmm. he's not, you know, in this osmosis where he's just, you know, like a sponge for (laughs) everybody else's bullshit. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think there's something interesting there, you know? Yeah. um, And that's probably really uncomfortable for him, I would think, because like running is, you know, well, especially now that he can't, and he can't run. Do yeah, he can't. So he's 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 now he can't run away yeah, from exactly. this, and he has to figure out yeah. other ways. Yeah, and that's. I mean, he still does go out for you know a couple hours a day, but it's not the same. He can't. There's not that catharsis of just mm-hmm. endless, like just rigorous miles and glycogen depletion and all of that. So he's, yeah, we're we're both figuring out these new selves that we mm-hmm. find ourselves in um, the post illness. Um, so, and we're also getting to know each other in that way, you know, right. we're both very different people now. So yeah. Who is he without being a professional yeah. runner? Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to, you have to redefine what those roles look like mm-hmm. and how you're interacting with yeah. each other. And learning how to just be, which for both mm-hmm. of us is very hard, <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> yeah. just to be. And I think that- It's the worst. I'm, we're both, he especially, and, and in reading your book, you and Rivs are quite similar in, in a lot of ways, in, in self-discipline, self-determination, extremism. Um, and, and he has a hard time not pushing the limits and not- just having a goal and reaching the goal and then what's the next goal. And so we're realizing that one of the hardest parts of being alive is to just be. And that doesn't mean being stagnant and just sitting around and doing nothing, but mm-hmm. feeling fulfilled being. And and I that's that's where we're what I'm trying to do right now is this book didn't make me happier. You know, and and I think in some part of my mind, I thought that reaching this goal would make me happier and and realizing that accomplishments don't do much but stroke our egos, you know, Mm -hmm. and then we're left with that kind of not crash, but just realizing, okay, I'm still me. I'm still a mom. I'm still, you know, I'm still Steph with all of my problems and issues, even though I accomplished this goal. And so my next goal is just be, it's a hard one. To be goalless. To be goalless, yeah. yeah. And, That's and terrifying. It is, and for ribs too, and and we're both in the same place where we're just really trying to just be, it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> I had uh, my friend Light Watkins on the podcast the other day, he's a meditation teacher, and he said something along the lines of, you know, the happiness that you will experience when you summit Everest is the mm. happiness that you brought to the mm. summit, right? Oh, it's yeah. not going to change, that, yeah. right? Like mm-hmm. that's between you and you yeah. outside of any kind of externalities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's, that is the Mount Everest decline, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. The whole thing. Yeah. yeah. How is, uh, I mean, how is his health now? How is he doing? He's good. Yeah. I mean, other than the lung damage which is mm-hmm. what more or less irreparable i mean i think they can have 
so see small improvements, but he basically has COPD from the tumor damage. Um, but he's doing what he can, and and he's healthy. He's cancer free, yeah, so good. that's all we can ask for, you know. Yeah. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I want to uh, go back and explore your background a little bit mm -hmm. and your kind of relationship with religion and spirituality. Mm -hmm. um, growing up in a Mormon household and, and being this sort of rebellious youth, like walk me through the salient aspects of, of yeah. that. Yeah, so I was raised in the LDS religion. Um, my mom had converted when she was 14 years old and met and married my dad who was not Mormon, which in itself is kind of an anomaly. As if you know Mormons, you mm -hmm. know that you're you're taught to more to marry other Mormons. But so I was already raised in a household that wasn't 100% culturally Mormon or or even genetically Mormon, you know. Um, and still, I had this firm belief in in the faith. Um, and when my father got sick. I truly believe that my faith could heal him, that if I prayed enough and that if I was obedient enough that he would be healed because that's what I was taught, both like really overtly, actually, if you have a perfect faith, miracles will be granted. And so when that didn't happen, when my father finally passed away a few days after my 14th birthday, I completely dispelled any notion of not only religion, but of spirituality and inspiration and any notion of hope um, because I felt so deeply betrayed by those notions. Um, and and so if God and faith weren't real, then nothing was. And so I could do whatever I want. And and 
And so I, I drank, I think I was four days after my 14th birthday and I got drunk at a house party and I cried. I spent the night crying under a dining room table. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was my big brother brought me home. Um, and, and I feel like that was it. And I didn't ever realize that I was drinking because I was grieving. I really thought mm-hmm. I was just making a normal teenage decision. Um, it really took me maybe five or six years to realize that the path I was on, the destructive path I was on, maybe was a result of my father's death. And that's how how disconnected I was from myself. Right, you're unconsciously reacting and responding yeah. to this trauma without mm-hmm. really understanding why you're doing what you're doing yeah. and thinking it's for other reasons. For other reasons. And this is the, this is the point, mm-hmm. this lives within you. It's an entity yep. until you heal it. Yep, yep, absolutely. And so I, I, I went down, I kept, I, I also feel as though, and again, this is something I read in your book, which I appreciated, that there was something bigger than myself always looking out for me. And even though I didn't believe in that thing, I could have, should have been dead or in jail or, you know, so many things should have happened to me that didn't. And I felt like there was always something stopping me from going over, mm-hmm. the pushing the limit just that last little bit. Um and and now I wonder if that was my dad, which was something I would have never, ever even entertained that thought um, up until Rivs got sick. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I still don't know, but I wonder. Was there a conscious um, impulse to like numb the pain or was this just, I'm partying like everyone else? And, or was there a, a sensibility of, of searching for some kind of answers that would replace that fall from grace that you had with Mormonism? I, I think it was this feedback loop where I I drank because I wanted to, because I was angry and I wanted mm-hmm. to feel. And it was only, when I was drunk was the only time I allowed myself to cry. And it was the only time that I kind of allowed myself to feel anything at all. And so I was doing it, but then I was feeling guilty because I was raised Mormon and raised to believe that, you know, any kind of drinking or any kind of partying was a sin. And then that made me feel guilty. So then I would drink more because Mm -hmm. I felt guilty. And so I was just in this just downward spiral and obviously none of it worked. (laughs) Yeah. And when you were able to emote when you were under the influence, like I'm curious about what the relationship in your household growing up as a kid was with kind of sharing your emotions openly. I mean, how was that? Yeah, we didn't you know, do that. Yeah, not a lot of that, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, we didn't yeah. really do that. I, <laughs> I mean, uh, that's shocking. Yeah, I mean, and I talk to my mom about it now. Who, uh, you know, I portray her in this book as this British British Stoic, which she she was. Mm-hmm. She was very, very stoic and and beautifully so. I think that her strength and her um, lack of showing emotion actually just carried us through, um, and then it was our responsibility later to learn how to grieve. Mm-hmm. And um, and I feel like for me, that was the perfect way to do it. I know that people could say, yeah, you weren't able to show your emotions. It wasn't that we weren't able to, it's just, we didn't know how. And when your father passed away, how was that explained to you by your mother? And, and what is the emotional residue of that experience? She, we didn't ever talk. We didn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. We didn't talk about it. Was you know, I came home, he had passed away while I was out at Walmart. Um, and you know, she looked at me 
said dad died. We were expecting it. It wasn't a shock. And then that was kind of, that was that. Right. You know, there was no, there was real, and, and I think now, and this is one of the wonderful parts of writing this book, um, is I realized why she did that. And because talking to your children about grief is an impossible task and one that I was having to confront. And it wasn't until I had to confront it for myself that I realized that she did it perfectly because there's no way to do it. You're you're grieving and you're trying to tenure the pain of your own children. It's impossible. And you do whatever you do and that's the right way to do it. Right. It's another <laughs> example of the universe lining up mm-hmm. to, you know, infer an opportunity out of this. Dad yeah. lung cancer, Riv's lung yeah. cancer. Um, this is how my mom dealt with it mm-hmm. and communicated to me when I was a kid. Now I'm in that position and I have this very difficult choice and I now appreciate more deeply how difficult mm-hmm. it was for my mother so I can forgive her, yep. have more empathy for her, maybe make different mm-hmm. choices. Um, but heal whatever wounding existed over the way in which she parented you and communicated with you. Yeah, absolutely. And that I didn't actually realize the depth of that healing until I was writing the book. And, And a lot of times writing is how I make sense of the world. And it wasn't until I was writing all that she did for me and the parallels between our lives at really around the same age. Um, when my dad was sick, she was quite young too. And and it was just kind of this aha moment that, oh my goodness, I am in my mother's position and I am doing pretty much the same thing that she did. I'm not able to talk to my kids very well about the possibility that Rivs might die because I don't know how to say these words to them. Mm-hmm. It's impossible. And I, I did show more emotion to my kids, um, but again, I don't think I did it perfectly. I'm sure in 10 years, they're going to turn around and criticize the way that I led them through that tragedy. And and I'm expecting it. It's rigged that way. Yeah, it, it, it wouldn't I matter. Mean, Whatever choice you made, yeah. they're going to have their issues yeah, with it yeah. and they can talk to their therapist mm-hmm. about it. Write a book about <laughs> you it. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And be mad about how yeah. you didn't do X, know, Y, or Z. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that's the way it should be, yeah. right? Yeah. This yeah. is how the species mm-hmm. evolves. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it is, again, one of those dualities. Like yeah. you want to be strong, make sure that your kids feel safe mm-hmm. and protected and mm-hmm. that you know everything is gonna be okay, mm-hmm. but you also wanna have that open channel of communication. You wanna be able to model um, you know, vulnerability and, and you know, what, it, what it looks like to go through something mm-hmm. hard imperfectly. I think yeah. that's an important lesson as well. And those two things are in tension with each other. And I think probably every parent who's had to deal with some kind of yeah. difficult issue and how to communicate to their kids about it, you know, butts up against that. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's an impossible yeah. task. And a lot of people actually, one of the most asked questions I get is what advice do you give to a parent going through something similar? Mm-hmm. And I don't have any. I I wish I had advice. I wish I could write out a formula for the perfect way to lead a child through tragedy, but there isn't one. And and also each child is so different. Each of my children have dealt with Riv's illness so differently. And it's not one size fits all, you know, and and so it's you just do your best and 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 they'll they'll be fucked up no matter what. No, I'm just yeah, <laughs> I know, right? Um but I think that the other Yes, like it's important to not just give blanketed mm-hmm. advice for this kind of thing. But one thing that you make clear in the book is 
you had to overcome, like you you were sort of operating under like, uh, you know, like I'm protecting them. Like mm-hmm. they don't need to know the details. And then, you know, the, the, the just the overwhelm of all of it mm-hmm. leads you to a certain kind of breakdown and you end up opening up to your kids, mm-hmm. uh, you know, somewhat yeah. in a vulnerable way. And that was received well, yeah. like it was received with empathy. And I think what I take from that is when in doubt, mm-hmm. like don't underestimate your children's yeah. ability to appreciate the humanness. And I think that they will end up respecting you more if you're transparent with them. Yeah. If you're hiding something because, and even if you're doing it for the right reasons, like you wanna protect them, that's what leads to you know distrust and all kinds of other stuff. And yeah. that doesn't mean that you're just you know unfiltered in yeah. all of it. You have to be responsible. But I think there's a lot of wisdom in understanding, even if they're young, and obviously what age they are is important. Mm-hmm. Um, that kids are resilient, yeah. and um, maybe they can't handle everything, but they can probably handle more than you might suspect. Yeah, and and I guess that that's a good thing to point out. Was I was keeping from them some of the the details of what was happening and the severity of those relief details that ribs could probably die. And that's what I was keeping mm-hmm. from them. But I was not holding back with my emotion with especially with Harper you're you're referencing my me breaking down in Harper's arms. She was 10 at the time and she pulled me in and she comforted me. And I hope that that was a beautiful moment for her. Probably mm-hmm. really tragic and sad, but also just realizing that my mom is human because growing up, my mom never felt completely human. She was just this great, like incredibly strong, powerful, like just unmovable person. And, and I tried to emulate that. But it's hard to connect with someone like yeah, that. Yeah. And, and I think that I hope that Harper can learn from me, um, sadness. It's okay to be sad. That's something I never knew was mm-hmm. it's okay to be sad. Um, and, and I'm trying to model for my children that sadness isn't a negative emotion. I mean, it's an appropriate it's, it's response an emotion. to a very difficult yeah. situation. Yeah. yeah. And, and that we can feel like, you know, as the premise of this book, everything all at once, we can feel sadness and fear and love and joy all in the same moment. We don't have to choose. And and that was that was huge for me to learn. It's also an expansive definition of strength. Mm. We think of mm-hmm. strength in a very in very narrow terms. Yeah. Like to be strong is to be taciturn and to like keep your shit together yeah. or whatever. But I think it's a different kind of strength to allow yourself to experience difficult emotions mm-hmm. and to do it with people you care about because you have to trust them and it takes a certain strength to yeah. do that, even if they're your your children. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And and Harper, for better or worse, is also an empath. She is Riv's mm. incarnate. She is, I see it in her. And I think that's also why I felt comfortable breaking down in her arms because it was almost as though she was the wiser one in that moment. I felt like she she could feel the the vastness of all of it and she could take it and so as long as the only caveat i would add to that as long as she doesn't feel she isn't made to feel that it's her responsibility Responsibility. absolutely yep and and that's kind of how i ended that chapter was hoping that they knew that my sadness wasn't something that they would ever have Mm. to carry because someone else's sadness you can't carry it you can't take it upon yourself and you can just comfort them in those times. Yeah. Um, back to the sex, drugs and rock and roll. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I love, you know, I love stories like this where I'm like, oh yeah, let's get into it. Yeah. Um, 
Despite your adventures, you know, with errant boyfriends and Mm -hmm. vans and, you know, trolling around the valley in Los Angeles, et cetera, I never never got the sense that you really had a problem with drugs and alcohol. I felt like you're being, you're in, you're in, weird codependent relationships with boyfriends who had problems. Yeah. And so you're going to AA meetings because that's what they need. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, like, well, but then the problem is that because I don't, I don't have, well, this is going to sound weird with how many tattoos I have, but I actually don't have an addictive personality. Uh-huh. Like ribs and I are different in that ribs is extreme and it's all or nothing. I am actually quite moderate in a lot of ways that I am able to- But you like the extreme dudes. I do. And obviously- This is your addiction. This is the addiction, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And the problem is, is that I can do things moderately and they can't. And so a lot of the guilt of my adolescence was I'm leading all of these people away from sobriety because mm. I did it on a few occasions just in my book. Right. And You're the temptress. I'm the temptress. And I don't mean to be. I just, I like to have a good time and I could do it within parameters, Without you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what is it you think inside of you that leads you to be attracted to these extreme personalities? Yeah. Good question. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll get back to you on that. But I, um, I think that there's something extreme about me. I mean, obviously I'm covered in tattoos and somehow I am able to do moderation or, or something is keeping me from going over the edge. And I still haven't figured that out. That's still what I'm trying to figure out is mm-hmm. why am I not um, going over the edge? And, and so I'm, I'm still figuring all of this out. It's, it's quite new. Yeah. It's still new to me. Yeah. Well, you got lucky in picking an extreme dude in the form of ribs because yeah. typically, like, they don't come in such a healthy package, <laughs> right. right? He's extremely healthy. Yeah. That's the extremism. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, he has a tendency to where, I know he spoke with you about this, the addiction of the mm-hmm. opiates. Um, he is, he and he's sober now. And and that's um, that's huge for him and for me, too, Um because it kind of, it helps me to, I feel like it's going to be a long path, but I, I feel like I'll get there. Interesting. Yeah. 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 I think it's tangled up in this ongoing um, reckoning with spirituality yeah. at yeah. the core yeah. of, of your searching. Yeah. Um, and in thinking about the inflection points along that timeline, uh, there's another interesting one, which is when you decide to go to BYU in Hawaii, mm-hmm. And you have this encounter with this bishop and you make this choice to be kind of more honest than perhaps that guy was used to or getting a surprising (laughs) response from him. Yeah. Yeah. I, so part of, um, being admitted to BYU Hawaii, which is a Mormon, obviously institution is you need to, um, go through an ecclesiastical endorsement. And so basically there's a checklist that they ask you, do you abstain from drugs, sex, alcohol, it's like, no, no, no. And and I knew I was going to quote unquote fail. Right. And and when he, when I told him everything, I divulged everything. And really at the time it did feel like a fuck you to, to God. Uh-huh. It felt like, you Because know everyone what? else is just saying yes to pass the test. Yeah. And they're checking boxes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And you can easily you drink lie. coffee? No. No. Yeah. no I, <laughs> never. And so that, I also added that into my story, him saying, you know, those things don't really matter. You're a good person. And I added that in, that true story in because I kind of, you know, dog on Mormonism a bit in, in my book, but I also wanted to show that 
there's good people there. There's good people everywhere. And just because that religion didn't resonate with me, it doesn't mean that it's all full of self-righteous bigots. You know, there are good people in those religions. So. Yeah, and he gave you kind of a surprisingly capacious response that allowed you to reframe yeah. that resentment. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But it didn't stop me from partying at BYU no. Hawaii. <laughs> also, okay. the question is, why did I... It's almost like I... Why did I choose a Mormon college? Right. You know, I, it's almost like You'd I like to You'd already rejected push, that. Yeah. So how, that was a question that I had. Like, yeah. wh- how did you end up there? Yeah. And I think the answer is, and and maybe going back to why am I... I, I think that I want so badly to be so... I don't know. I wanted so badly to be good. And I just didn't know how to do it. And I didn't know what good meant. And all I knew was good was what was taught to me in my religion, which which is abstinence. Mm-hmm. And obviously it's so much more than just that. And it, that's something I'm still, still learning. Yeah. Yeah. And that, but it's a search for, it's not, a, it, maybe not necessarily a search for goodness, but a search for somebody to tell you that you're mm, good, right? Yeah. Or to make you yeah. feel okay with who yeah. you are. And that's exactly what that Bishop did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 It's, it is fascinating that you ended up going there. Yeah, it is. I places, still wonder. Right? Uh-huh, you yeah. Know? Um, yep. And so what does that look like now? I mean, everything all at once. Mm-hmm. This is a, you know, non-dogmatic, expansive, mm-hmm. uh, you know, concept of, of spiritual energy and the mm-hmm. way that the universe works yeah. that you can't quite put a name on it. Mm-hmm. You don't attempt to do that. Yep. Uh, it seems that the overarching energy here is is love, but mm-hmm. like, how do you define your relationship with the unseen? Yeah, it's it's ongoing, it's evolving, it's different from even when I wrote the book. Um, when I wrote the book, I felt very certain about what I had felt and seen, and now as I get farther away from that experience, I question more and more. I'm I'm a cynic, so I will question no matter what, but. I ha- when I reread the book, I realized that it was very true to me, um, the the spirituality of, of it all. And I can't deny, as much as I want to deny, that there was a strong spiritual component to everything that happened. Um, yeah, it, it was. When I walked into Riv's room when he was sedated, I felt more connected to the universe than I ever had in my entire life. And in a moment... Moments that should have been terrifying and tragic and sad were some of the most love-filled moments I'd ever experienced in my life, sitting next to my sedated husband on two different life support machines. And the only way I was able to explain that, well, try to explain that, is that it was this this otherworldly love that was just in the room. And it was was palpable. You walk in there and... And I even talked to the nurses and the doctors and, you know, the therapists that were in the room and they agree there was something transcendental happening in that room and I couldn't deny it. And they can't deny it. Even the doctors were like, there was some miracle and magic going on in this room. And, and I can't explain it. And I don't know what it was. Um, I like to believe it was part of my dad that was there. I love to believe that um, some form of God, goddess but it was love no matter what you call it 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 was love the doctors recounting their their version of that story being unique to ribs yeah because they're in 
that scenario yeah. every single day with different people, right? Yeah. So what is it about Rivs that helped co-create that type of shared experience, do you think? Well, interestingly, what they said was it wasn't necessarily him, but it was it was the bond between us. Right. That was felt transformative, which shocked me. Um, one of his first nurses wrote me a letter about how she had never met him awake. She had never seen us interact, but somehow the like the palpable love that she could feel changed her whole idea of love. And I wasn't trying to do anything and he was asleep, but I think it was it was a beautiful connection that not only between me and him, but the love that I was bringing from the world and almost as though I was a conduit and and kind of transferring that love into him and it was it was incredible and it was crazy it felt mm. like i felt like a lot of times i would leave that hospital room and i felt like nauseous as though i i was the empath all of a sudden like i was absorbing and transferring which is something i had never ever experienced before but i'd heard ribs talk about it a bunch and it's almost like we switched roles and i was able to do for him what he had been doing for other people right well you're also for the first time shouldering responsibility for your own growth and personal mm-hmm. well-being, yeah. right? This transition from thinking Rivs is going to take care of it, mm-hmm. he's all powerful to yeah. suddenly, oh shit, like yeah. I have to do this for myself and then I have to go home and figure out how to do it with these kids mm-hmm. in private while I'm suffering and grieving all at the same time. And then on top of that, the doctors or it was one doctor I think who said to you, "Listen, you know, a huge part of whether or not he's going to make it is up to you. Mm-hmm. You're a part of this healing process. Like, what are you bringing to this yeah. equation? Yeah. Which speaks to exactly what you just shared. Like, yeah. are you contributing to his improvement yeah. or are you, you know, sucking life out from underneath him right. because you're dealing with too much already right. and you're upset because he's not going to fix you anymore. Right, exactly. You know? yeah. well, and that's, well, that's what I found is every day that I went in there, it was, I think, 101 days. And he was sedated for 50 of those days. And I went in every, I didn't miss a single day. And every day that I went in, I felt more and more alive and connected to myself in a time where I should have been falling apart. And part of me was, but recognizing that the fullness of me is falling apart. That's okay. It's okay to feel strong and completely weak at the same time. It's okay to feel anger and and gratitude at the same time. And and the more that I accepted the, really the monism, not even duality, like how complementary these mm-hmm. feelings were, not contradictory. And the more I allowed those complementary emotions, the more powerful I felt. And and as I get farther away from that, I, I, I don't feel it as much, you know, now. And I think that a lot of times we are, we have the choice to become our best selves in the worst times. And somehow I became my best self in the worst time of my life. I don't know how, again, I wish I had a a guidebook, but it was just recognizing the power that had always been inside of me. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't in ribs, you know, And and realizing that I was more powerful, not necessarily on my own, but in this moment where I didn't depend on him. Yeah, you had a capacity that was latent within you Mm -hmm. and pain and challenge is the crucible Mm -hmm. for connecting with that and and sort of bringing it forth into the world. So 
it was that's the opportunity, yeah. right? Yeah. The interesting thing is if you if you co-sign to the idea that all of us have mm. capacity and potential that we're walking around with that mm-hmm. we're just not aware of or yeah. uh, we haven't really you know brought forth in our own lives. Um, do we really need to be in that kind of a tragic event or to suffer yeah. extreme pain yeah. in order to manifest it? Yeah. It's a choice. Yeah. It just rarely happens. It rarely happens. Short in the of mm-hmm. you know, basically being boxed into a corner in yeah. that kind of a way. Yeah. Well, similarly, Ribs and I are for lack of a better word, happier together than we've ever been. And people are like, how are you so happy? I'm like, uh, just make him almost die. And then you'll, you know what I mean? Right. You'll go through together this recognition of how much you love each other and how important you are to each other. And things that we take for granted that are sometimes only shown to us in the depths of despair, sadly, how do you access that feeling of gratitude and awareness when you're not in the depths. Right. And I'm struggling with that yeah. now even. Please tell me how to do that. Please, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you don't yeah. know? Oh. Cause I, I'm now even, I wanna maintain the lessons I learned, be present. There's no better moment than this moment right now. And all the love you ever need is inside of you. All of these truths, I know them, but it's harder to feel them when life is good. Right, and imagine your ribs where your whole life is oriented around connecting with suffering mm-hmm. yeah. as a vehicle yeah. for growth and truth and self-understanding right. and appreciation. And suddenly that preferred voluntary version of suffering is replaced with a different type of challenge, mm-hmm. overcoming this illness. And then on the heels of that, stillness. Mm-hmm. The suffering is not being able to uh, engage with your chosen version of suffering. Mm-hmm. It's a yeah. passive suffering. Yeah. And I'm sure that is much more uncomfortable yeah. for him. It would be for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and also there's, a, I think there's a physiological component to the metabolizing energy. That alone, I mean, he literally was using the energy that he absorbed from other people to metabolize his yeah, runs. Yeah, and now transmute it. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And now that he can't do that, it's he has a hard time being around people. Right. That's the truth yeah. because he can't absorb, well, he absorbs what he can't metabolize. Is he actively searching for alternative ways of doing that? Yeah, yep. I think he's, he's yeah, figuring it out. We, yeah, but it's, yeah, it's a, it's a journey for sure. Yeah. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. I want to talk about the time malleability stuff, mm-hmm. this sort of quantum idea. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if you're ribs and you're in a coma, you're going to have, and you come out of it, you're going to have a unique relationship with time. Yeah. Um, but time is a bendable concept that is influenced by 
the extremity of what you're experiencing. Mm -hmm. Time slows down, time speeds up, et cetera. Um, but in this quantum sense, this idea that like there is no past and there is mm -hmm. no future, we're on this sort of recursive loop where everything is happening all the time yeah. on some on, in, in some dimension mm -hmm. um, is is a fascinating one. Uh, I, I'm I'm curious as to whether that was initially prompted by your psychedelic experiences. Well, I was going to say, yeah, um, and it's something that I'm dealing with right now. And in a different way, I've got a family member who's suffering from dementia, mm -hmm. and to just observe that person. You know their 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 relationship with time mm -hmm. is you know like they could be one minute they're living ten years ago yeah. and then they're and you know so that's yeah. got to be scary but also you know it's bizarre because then you have to visit that timeline yeah. and you know memory is an anchor for time mm -hmm. right and our relationship to memory is is a way of time traveling yeah. I guess on some level so walk me through this whole concept that. Yeah is really the whisper in the background on every page mm -hmm. of this book. Yeah, well, and that's even why I wrote uh, the memories that tethered me to myself throughout my life are written in present tense because what I learned and what I'm learning is that memory our memory is the the cursor to things that are always happening. These memories are actually ever present, and and we can access them and go back to that time in a in a moment. Well, they're they're consciously or unconsciously impacting every decision yeah. that we make, so they do live in the present. Yeah, they do yeah. absolutely. And um, I mean, the most the like the the starkest example of this was when Rivs was at the end of his life, and I went in there to say goodbye is what they told me to do. And I rested my head on his chest. And in a moment, we were dancing together and we were living that moment together in the present. Mm. And nobody could tell me that didn't happen, that I was not metaphysically there because I was. My body was here, but I was there with him and we were dancing together. And that that memory, I feel, drew us back together into this world and and called him back to this life. And I think that example was why I wanted to weave the malleability of time into, into my whole book. Um, because I realized that it was memory that was saving me over and over again, mm. mostly the memory of love. And, and that's what I feel kept me my whole life from going over the edge. These, these ever present, moments of presence um, that I was called back to. And um, and on the other hand, Rives, he lived lifetimes in his coma. He was, he, I mean, he has some incredible stories about where he was and where he went and how many different families he had. And, and who's to say that those Whoa. weren't real, that those weren't really occurring lives you know mm. I, i'm not i would never say he says some of those memories of when he was in the coma feel more real than this life memory you know wow so i'm really really interested in the quantum aspect that i don't i wish i understood on a physics level yeah um but i all i know is my experience with with time and um yeah so what do we take from that how are we supposed to interpret that? Or how is that meant to, from your perspective, yeah. inform our lives? I mean, really it's that love is woven into every aspect of our lives 
in in the form of memory. Um, and that in the most tragic moments, love or the memory of love is still there. And I like to think of my father, whether he exists in a spiritual realm or just in a memory, I think that the memory of his love is the same as saying that he lives in some spirit world and that that love is entwined in, in every aspect of my life. And, um, and it's in all of our lives. And if what, one of the most pivotal moments of, of my um, life today was recognizing how that love had been in, in everything, absolutely everything. When I was drunk, crying under a table, when I was hitchhiking through Guatemala, when I was, you know, everything that I did, love was there. I just, I just didn't recognize it in myself, so I couldn't recognize it in other people. How do we tap into that? <laughs> do we have to, you know, do know. psilocybin? Like, well, can we, can I, how do I, I want, I want some of that juice stuff. Have you ever done psychedelics? I haven't. Okay. Yeah. And I know, okay. So that's probably touchy because psychedelics. Okay. We, it comes up all the time on the podcast. Yeah. We talk about it a lot. Because you've had um, Gabor Mate here, right? So. Yeah, I've had lots of people, yeah. you know, ex, you know, explored this extensively yeah. and I won't bore the listeners with my perspective uh -huh. on it. I, I, you know, only to say that, because I'm sober, I have trepidation around yeah, it, but I yep. also can't dismiss or deny mm. the efficacious, you know, benefits mm -hmm. that I've seen many people have and the interesting science that's coming out about yeah. how it's helpful for people with depression and PTSD. Yeah. Um, but on a purely, you know, kind of spiritual plane, I'm interested in the epiphanies mm. and the truths that then seem to persist yeah. well beyond that experience. Okay. And in your case, clearly, you know, have informed your entire worldview. Yeah, well, I I really do credit psychedelics with my ability to handle Riv's illness the way I did. Um, it was only six months before he got sick that I did my hero mushroom journey. And that's what cracked me open to the possibility of spirituality. And I think had I not had that experience, I might not have been open to even the idea that Rivs existed somewhere other than in his body. Maybe I wouldn't be open to the fact that I could conduct love into him through some spiritual cosmic channel. And I really think had I not had that mushroom experience, I wouldn't have been able to do the things that I did with and for him. Mm. Um, but that being said, I... I know some people who are kind of militant about or about psychedelics and think it's the only way. I think it's the quickest way to get there, but I do believe there are other channels. Um, my sister-in-law is a quantum healer and she does like the holotropic breathing, mm -hmm. um, meditation, but of course that takes a lot more time and mental energy yeah. than just drinking a tea and going right there, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, oh, holotropic breathing, I'll bring you there pretty quick. Oh, I've never done it. I'm, oh, I'm terrified. I don't... We do these retreats and Julie, my wife, takes people through holotropic breathing exercises. Uh -huh. And 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 in our past retreat, the, our most recent one, she took everyone through it like on day one. Mm -hmm. Like, let's just cut through the shit right now. Yeah, and yeah. like people were having insane yeah. experiences and everyone would go around the room and share afterwards. And like, I was an eagle and I was flying, you know. Like, <laughs> What's so, really cool and what I love about, breath. yeah, my mom is, you know, she's Mormon still. And she's on this whole journey where she went to Thailand. She She's mostly vegan. She did a vegan cleanse mm. and did a holotropic breathing experience. And, you know, 
coming from a really like Puritan religion, it, that's not accepted really, this yeah. you know outside spirituality, but she did it and she said she saw Jesus and Buddha and they were both equally important. I'm like, there you wow. go. And and for her to- The expansive. Just, I love, yeah. I love that, you know, <laughs> that that's what she yeah. saw and they were both equally important. And uh-huh. So I do think that psilocybin is wonderful. For me, it worked. I haven't done another hero trip since because- what I needed at the time what does was, that mean hero trip? Well, you take like a shit, like five oh, grams, like a massive, like dose? A massive dose, where uh-huh. you, you complete dissolution of ego. Like I didn't know who I was, where I was, um, but I needed to do that because I was so dissociated from myself. So I needed something to, and this was only you know four years ago. Um, I need something to crack me open and to show me. I had been compartmentalizing my grief. I'd been compartmentalizing my feelings. Um, I wasn't fully healed. You never really are. It's okay to feel everything all at once. I needed that shaking. Um, but I don't need that now. I was I was shook. You know, mm-hmm. Riv's illness cracked me even wider open. I don't need it right now. And I think it's recognizing when and if you need that rewiring or that, you know, restructuring of your brain and your thought patterns. And I'm recognizing that I'm still on, I'm still on the trip. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm still going. And, um, I know they recommend doing it something like every six months, but I cannot fathom. They? They. Yeah. Who is that? (laughs) Those mushroom people. This. My brain's like, can I do it every day? Well, you can microdose, but that doesn't do it for me. That didn't ever do it for me. Um, Although it did help me get out of depression once, the mm. microdosing. But anyways, I don't think it's a blanket. Uh, I think some people use it as as the be-all, end-all uh, answer. I don't think anything is, you know? Right. I think you got to yeah, see I what mean, works. Yeah, I mean, the way I think about it is it's a portal into a state of consciousness that would otherwise be difficult to access, mm-hmm. not impossible. Yeah. Um, and for some people, that's just enough mm-hmm. to shift them and get them interested in in a different way mm-hmm. of navigating the world yeah. that otherwise they would never have, you know, yeah. been open to, yeah. I guess. And I got there when Ribs was sick every day mm-hmm. without the need for any substance. I, I got there every time I was in his room felt like that kind of transcendental experience. But like we've been saying, do you have to go there? Do you have to suffer right. to feel it? Maybe you do. Maybe you do. I don't Maybe know. you do. It is a very hero's journey kind mm-hmm. of architecture to this story. I'm sure when you're in the middle of it, like anybody who's challenged by life, you're thinking, why is this happening to me? I finally ha- you know, had this life and I worked mm-hmm. so hard and I did all these things and suffered and explored and now I'm happy and then all of this is happening mm-hmm. why and what and but when you look in the rearview mirror it's like everything's lining up mm-hmm. perfectly for this experience obviously you're choosing events and moments mm-hmm. and imbuing them with meaning yep. um, to you know to create a narrative right. which is not any more real than some other if you had chosen a whole bunch of other events to mm-hmm. imbue them with meaning so there's a lot of human imposed ingenuity on top of it. But when I look at, you know, first of all, your dad wasn't the first person in your life to suffer from cancer. You had right. a you had a brother. Yeah. Like you had you you met that at how old were you? Four thirteen or something no, like that? I was six or, when oh, my you were, brother you, you were super young. He was right? three, I was six. Yeah. So that was your first universe yeah. is knocking, hey, yeah. here's a little thing. Yeah. 
how are you gonna deal with this? Yeah. Oh, wasn't enough here. Well, <laughs> let's throw your dad into the mix yeah. and see what happens here. Yeah. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, she's gonna have some more adventures <laughs> and, you know, and then, know. okay, well, I'm gonna drop an anvil on, yeah. on this person's head yeah. in the form of, you know, ribs and a rare form of lung cancer. Um, and also six months prior to that, you go off and do this psilocybin mm -hmm. thing, which is sort of seeding you or preparing you to have a different experience this time uh, with a with a, a, a new lens that would allow you to navigate it with uh, an expanded perception yeah. of meaning. I'm, man, I, I'm really weary. I don't like saying that I see, but it is. I know what you're saying. Uh, but, but, it's like, I, but I do. The universe see didn't it. decide to do all uh, of these things for you. Yeah, I understand right. that. Because that, yeah. But can you find meaning in yeah. that and extract that meaning to, you know, to kind of, uh, you know, to grow and evolve? Yeah. I guess. Well, and more than that, how could I look back and not see how it was a little eerily not predestined, but everything, like you said, lined up so perfectly. I can't, I, I hate it, but I can't deny that it did feel very uh, meant to be in some right, ways. You're, you're like Luke Skywalker yeah, in your right? own movie. You know, you know what? I, I, I don't ask why did these bad things happen to me because far worse things happen to people. And I'm very aware sure. of that. And I really am. And I, I don't think I've had some tragedy filled. I've had a very beautiful life. Um, I chose to tell the tragedy side of my life, but I've had a pretty good life. Well, first of all, you're 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 being careful to not portray yourself or be perceived in any way as a victim right, right? well yeah and also that you're not the main character in yeah. some grand you know architecture of right. the universe conspiring just for you right right yeah. like you're just a person living your life yeah. things happen yeah i never asked why did these bad things happen to me i i really never have mm -hmm. but i ask why why did all these good things happen around these bad things? Why did I get so much guidance and love and assistance throughout my life when so many people are left alone? And and I think that's where, that's the why that I ask. It's almost like a survivor's guilt. Like why, why was I so lucky to have so much love in my life when I know a lot of people don't have that? And, mm. and so in some way, that's why I wrote the book as this tribute to love itself, because I've had so much of it and and wanting to honor that is the thing that kept me alive my whole life. Um, and, and but that is the why that I ask. Why? Why me? Why? Why am I so lucky to have that help? Yeah. Yeah. You were talking about goals earlier, and and certainly, you know, you had a goal of writing a book and having people enjoy it. I'm sure you've set other goals in your life, but at the same time, you don't strike me as like a plotter and a planner. You, you, you strike me as somebody who is living your life based on gut instinct yeah. and you're making spontaneous decisions and you're not really thinking that far ahead, yeah. right? And, and, and life has worked out, mm. um, which maybe mystifies you because you didn't plan it yeah. or you're not thinking ahead. You're just, this is what my heart is telling me. I'm gonna jump and go here. Mm -hmm which I think is a really beautiful way to live. I know some other people that live that way. They're just like, I never worry about, as long as I'm connected to my heart and it feels right to me, yeah. I do it and I have faith mm -hmm. and trust and I can make a leap. Yeah. Um, but that requires like a level of trust in your own instincts well, to guide you. That's spot on. Ribs and I always joke that uh, he, 
that I'm I'm just the ultimate coaster and I always have been. I've just I've just allowed life to happen. Do you know? And mm-hmm. I, I allow it to happen and I'm just there for the ride. And bad things have happened along the way, but somehow it's always worked out for me. But there's and then there's someone like Ribs that plans every moment of every day and knows what five years from now is going to look like. And mm-hmm. I don't even think about t- today. I don't know what I'm going to do right, this but afternoon. But when you're not thinking ahead like that <laughs> yeah. and things go well and you're surrounded by love, it's impossible to not believe that yeah. on some level you're being guided and sure. taken care of. But you also can't prescribe that to other people because I think it's also could be dangerous to live that way. What's if... interesting is that it worked out exactly. given your level of disconnection from self because yeah. I would I would say to somebody who operates that way, make sure you're really connected with yeah. who you are. Otherwise that gut instinct is mm-hmm. just some weird memory mm-hmm. that you're being prompted by and you don't know why. Yeah. And that can all go terribly yeah. wrong and often it does. Yeah, and that's why I do attribute some of my earlier life survival really to something I can't explain mm-hmm. because I wasn't connected to myself and I was extremely reckless and and still, it all worked out. As a 22-year-old, I chose to marry Rivs, who I, I was partying at the time and I was reckless and wild uh-huh. and he was just off his mission, like a really sweet right. Mormon boy. And somehow <laughs> he finds me- Where did he me, go on his mission? Brazil. Yeah. Yeah. And did he have a beard at 22? No, you're not allowed. I can't even imagine what he looked like. You can't, he was really, ha- well, he was yeah. handsome, but yeah. he, he has like a really good uh-huh. jawline. But but again, I like, <laughs> why, How how did that, and, yeah, and it's what like, was oh, it about him? Again, well, what about him? I mean, what wasn't it about him? Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, what was it about me? I feel like we just knew. And I, I, as I write in my book, when I saw him, it was almost like another one of those memories. Like, I know you. It doesn't make sense, but I know you somehow. And um, kind of like how you said in your book that you said you were going to marry your wife, mm-hmm. right, that day. It's And I'd never felt that way before. I didn't even think I was going to get married. I thought I was just going to coast my whole life and be a beach bum. And and then I he walked into class and it was just, oh my gosh, there you are, you know? Yeah. And, and That's some past life shit. Yeah, exactly. And or that's, just this yeah, cyclical nature yeah. of time and the yep. bleeding of past and future together yep. into an interesting present. Present for now. And, yeah. and again, like, yeah, that malleability of time, it's, we, this isn't, my friend Vanessa in Flagstaff says, this isn't your first rodeo, Steph. Mm. You know, the things, the way that life has lined up for you, it's not your first time. You dove into this knowing exactly what you were going to do and who you were going to meet. And I, when she used to say that, I was like, oh my gosh, that's such bullshit, you know? And now I'm seeing it unfold and it's truer every day. So, yeah, wow. Yeah. Have you seen the movie Arrival? Yeah, no. No, I don't think so. Oh, this is your homework stuff. Okay, okay. I'm signing this movie to Wait, you. Arrival. Denis Villeneuve, it's a science fiction no, movie, Aliens uh-uh. Come, um, but it's really about our relationship with and our perception of time. Mm-hmm. That's that's really what okay. the movie is about. And I think it's gonna blow your mind. Okay, yeah. all right. So that's what you're I'll gonna do watch that. That's what I'll do tonight. Okay, now good. I have a plan <laughs> <laughs> for the first time um, in my life. In addition to the quantum time past present stuff and the the you know the the duality themes, there's also, I guess this is sort of a cousin to to uh, the non dualism aspects of the story, but the story is also about what's what lives in the between spaces, mm. you know, the liminal spaces yeah. between 
between um, death and life, right? Between day and night, mm-hmm. between religion and spirituality and, and, and what lives in between anger and mm-hmm. happiness, gratitude, et cetera, um, or the mundane and the sacred. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you think about that? Or how did you kind of plant your flag in that murkiness? Well, that was a huge theme I wanted to explore because I was raised to believe in polarity in you know, good and evil mm-hmm. and sin and obedience. And that damaged me so much as a child because I believed that perfection was the goal. And, and if I wasn't perfect and living on that end of the spectrum, then I wasn't doing it right. And time and time again, life taught me that life exists between the extremes. It's not good or evil. It's not right and wrong. It's everything all at once, Mm -hmm. really, essentially. And when I came to accept that the best of life exists in the gray areas, in the liminal areas, then I was almost able to accept the wholeness of myself because I am good and bad and happy and angry. And, mm-hmm. and I always tried to give moral weight to my emotions, you know, that gratitude was a positive emotion and anger was a negative emotion. And, and I truly believed I had to choose between them. And then recognizing that there is no moral weight to, to emotion. They just are. And they're necessary. You know, anger is equally as necessary as gratitude in a lot of cases. Um, That was shown to me by recognizing how anger in my adolescence actually fueled me and kept me alive when I think had I not had anger kind of fueling me forward, I probably would have been far more self-destructive and just kind of desolate. Mm -hmm. Um, And and it wasn't until Rivs got sick that I learned to appreciate that side of myself, the rageful, angry side that that was really essential to who I am. Um, and then on the spiritual side of that, um, Riv's room was the in-between. It was that, that um, it wasn't life and it wasn't death. And it was a place that I still don't have words for, um, but it was like a sanctuary. And I felt more alive in that space between life and death and more connected than I ever had in my, in, and I think part of it is, again, going back to time, time didn't exist in that room other than the monitors, you know, beeping and kind of like bringing me back to, to the present there time kind of suspended when I was with him and we could be in Hawaii together and we could be caught up in all these memories or past lives, whatever you want to call them. Um, and time ceased to exist. And it was a really sacred, sacred space. But again, all of this happened in between. Yeah. I'm just wondering how I can connect with something, some semblance of that it's into, my, into my life. You know, it's, yeah. just, it's, it's, a, it's a peak experience. Yeah. And then it's about the judgments that we attach to it and thinking about your, your Mormon background, a very binary mm-hmm. um, structure, yeah. right? Good, bad, evil, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then realizing uh, to use your words that actually there's a fluidity mm-hmm. to truth. Yeah. And anger is not necessarily bad or being mm-hmm. sad. It's a story that we attach to certain emotions, mm-hmm. but to your point, these emotions are neutral. Can mm-hmm. we embrace those aspects of ourselves with the same 
you know, level of, of compassion that we would embrace the, the aspirational mm-hmm. emotions that we're all seeking, yeah. right? Meaning, purpose, happiness, yeah. love, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and that's a challenge because yeah. we have these, this programming, you right. know, we're supposed to be like this. And if we're not like that, then there's something wrong with us. And that judgment that we levy upon ourselves, that punishment is the antithesis of the compassion that we're striving to import to others and yet are incapable of, of providing for ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And and what's interesting is it's, it is a Christian notion that duality, you know, light mm-hmm. can exist without darkness. But what I found was it's not contradictory, it's complementary. And, and that's a more Eastern Buddhist way of looking at things that it's not light versus dark, it's light and dark together. And, and just like it is gratitude and anger together, they, mm-hmm. they complement each other. And if they're complementary, why should we shun one or exclude one um, or favor one over the other? I don't know. Why do we do that? Why do we do it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I wish we, yeah. I wish we didn't. There would mm-hmm. be, there's so much freedom on the other side yeah. of that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I felt it when Ribs was sick, that love for my brokenness that, you know, I'm not feeling it as much anymore. But mm-hmm. during that time, I really, I was like, that's why I am who I am today is because I went through that and I was reckless and that built me to the person I am today. How could I regret those things if they've taught me what I know now, you know? I, right. And those broken pieces, those fractured, splintered aspects of ourselves ultimately you know, on the other side of healing become the most beautiful mm-hmm. pieces, yeah. right? What is that Japanese art yeah, where I'm when the it. China breaks or, you know, they piece it back together yeah. with beautiful glue and yep. it becomes a much more prized, cherished yeah. possession as a result of it because yep. of its flaws. Yeah, that was in my head a lot as as Ribs was sick, that I, this, I just had this feeling that something, no matter the outcome, this was gonna, I was gonna choose to make this to make me stronger, but I knew it was a choice, you know, mm-hmm. and I was going to choose to make it make me stronger. Um, but it was, it was obviously a conscious and still is a conscious choice that I have to make. Yeah. Is it going to be a crucible for your growth or are you going to allow it to destroy mm-hmm. you or define you in some unhealthy way? Or are you going to become a victim? The narrative that you associate with it becomes very powerful Mm -hmm. because it reinforces meaning. And that meaning can be fluid, Mm -hmm. just like everything else that you speak about in the book, right? And that's a choice just like anything else. And I think my favorite, this is, you know, on a similar vein, like my favorite quote out of the entire book um, is when you say human frailty is the great mason of becoming. Mm -hmm. To me, that like says it all. It's, and, so explain, and, yeah. explain, you know, what's behind that for yeah. you. Well, and again, it comes back to the the danger of not wanting to say that being broken makes us stronger because it doesn't everyone. But it is, we are given a choice in those dark moments, in the moments of tragedy. Will you choose to make, like, allow this to make you stronger or will you choose to allow it to break you beyond repair. And I think that it's a choice we can make 10 years down the road um, because I think that my father's death, the narrative I told myself about my response to grief in my adolescence was that it broke me and I was mm-hmm. reckless and I allowed it to break me and and 
now I look back and I say, wow, that was building me the whole time. Mm. And even though for over a decade I told myself that I had been broken, really now I reframe and say, I was being built that whole that whole time. All of the recklessness was building me to the wisdom that I have today. And and so it really is th- that tragedy is is a mason and we're building our we can choose to build ourselves stronger. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it's again it's it's a tricky and it's a tightrope to walk um and that choice has to be be made daily. Yeah. It's not a choice that we make and then it's everlasting, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, looming over this whole thing is this non-dualistic idea of love. Mm-hmm. It's all about love. Love permeates everything. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of like, give me a fucking break. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, like, so, know. you know, it's like, you're, you're exposing yourself as an easy target mm-hmm, for somebody mm-hmm. who is maybe woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Totally, yep. Uh, so help me, understand what you're really getting at here. Because when I think about love, I mean, I agree with you, but I also think of love showing up in different ways and in different forms. Mm -hmm. Some love is conditional, some Mm -hmm. love is temporal. Certain relationships aren't meant to last forever. Mm -hmm. They they come together, a beautiful thing happens and then then time passes and that relationship is complete. Um, And then there's the eternal Mm -hmm. love. Uh, Julie, my wife, likes to describe it as the sun that is shining. The sun mm-hmm. is not discerning. If the sun mm-hmm. is emitting rays of light, which are love, it's not discerning where those mm-hmm. rays are shining. Yeah. It shines equally upon everyone without judgment, mm-hmm. right? That's a different type of love. I, I suspect that's really what you're getting at yeah. here, but Walk me through this for for the the skeptical yeah. naysayer you know brain that's listening. Well, to this me right now. I, had yeah. I read this book five years ago, I would have <laughs> right. been like, "Wow, yeah. okay." Um, really, I mean the universal love, this ineffable love that is everywhere and unconditional, and how that exists. Easy for you to say. Well, <laughs> with your beautiful kids and your <laughs> no, like, yeah. well, I know, exactly. But but it is there if, but I didn't see it. I didn't recognize it until just a few years ago because I didn't have it inside myself. And I think that it's just a reflection of what we have to give ourselves. And like I said earlier, I was searching for that love outside of myself over and over again. And I was trying to fight it in drugs and alcohol and men and countries. And it was an insatiable thing because it didn't have a receptacle inside of me. And so the love that I'm talking about is just a reflection of what we can give ourselves because it really is all around us all the time. You can see it in anyone walking by the street if you choose to see it, but you're not going to see it if you don't have that self-love inside of you. And again, it's a daily decision that I make to love myself and therefore feel more love for humanity and more love from humanity. Um, and Is then, there a structure or a modality for practicing that? Like, what does that actually look like? You're asking me. I have yeah, no, I no. I like, did. My, uh, my agent asked <laughs> for an outline to my book. Here's my list no, of, I'm here's like, how I do this outline. every single day. Yeah, <laughs> I never okay. wrote an outline for my book. It was just going to happen. But um, That's why it took you 10 years. I, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah it's true. <laughs> but I thank God it did because it would it would have been a different book you know 5 years sure, ago of course. of course again that timing that cosmic timing thing but um 
I don't, I, again, yeah, you're, you're right. People are going to say, yeah, easy for you to say you've had love throughout your life, but I also chose I'm choosing to see in retrospect mm-hmm. the love throughout my life. It's another choice that I'm making to say, I could also look back on my life and say, wow, I had a really tragedy filled life. All I knew was hospitals when I was a little kid. My dad died when I was 14. 20 years later, the love of my life almost dies. I could choose that narrative. I could tell that, but I'm choosing to see the love woven in and out of all of those stories. Yeah. And and it's a choice I make. And it, it is easy for me to say, but it's also not. I could tell a very different story. Um, and and I'm choosing in my book, I choose to show that universal love through the actions of other people, you know. Um, but it didn't really matter who it was coming from. Because I do believe that the source is the same. It's It's just our human interconnectedness. It's this love that in psychedelics you see very tangibly that God is love and that's the current that's connecting us all. And so Mm -hmm. you can, you just, it's a choice to see it or not Mm -hmm. see it, Mm -hmm. but there's no framework. Maybe there is, but not in my mind. (laughs) Yeah. The truth that everything is one, like all the atoms are connected, you know, the, the, we're mostly open space, this Mm -hmm. table, our bodies, the energy that we share, it's all, a common singular thing. Mm-hmm. Despite that truth, it's impossible for me to maintain that sensibility yeah. in a practical sense throughout yeah. my day. Oh, me too. Maybe yeah. psychedelics help get you there yeah. on some level. Yeah. Um, certainly, we'd probably be in a better place as a planet and a culture and whatever if we yeah. could if we could really grok that. Yeah. Um, but I'm wondering about, and I know like advice, like when people ask you for advice, you, get, you start to cringe a little bit, like you, you have a discomfort <laughs> with like yeah, telling anyone tell. what to do, which I respect and yeah. appreciate. Um, but the person who's suffering, who needs that healing mm-hmm. and that message the most is the most difficult person to connect with because yeah. they're encased in that shell with a certain narrative and a pain body mm-hmm. that makes it very difficult. It, it, that's the person who will be the first to dismiss yeah, anything that you would have to say yeah. about this. Yeah. And, and, but I've also been that person. Mm-hmm. And so have I. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's the thing is I, and I wrote this with old me in mind um, because I knew what I would say had I read certain lines in this book, you know, f- mm-hmm. only f- four or five years ago. Um, but I couldn't, deny that that was the truth that I found. And I wasn't going to filter myself because old me would have torn it apart. And and I know that my book isn't for everyone because I know it's not going to resonate with everyone. But someone who is suffering and without love and lonely, um, first of all, can you find that love inside yourself? Yeah, right. I mean, in moments of despair, you can't. And I know that because I've been that person. But as the mal- like the malleability of time, can you remember a memory of love? Is there something that tethers you to love a moment, even if it's a stranger? Um, and what did that feel like? And where did that come from? And and as a practice, rec- choosing to recognize or remember those memories maybe can lead you more to seeing how love is all around us. But. Mm. Or just do a hero dose. And of then you're like, you're like shirking. Oh, you know, like, 
Just own it, oh. Steph. That was beautiful. Thanks. Just like, oh. come, this is about you standing in your power. Yeah, I know. Right? Yeah. That's what the book is about. Yeah. <laughs> Don't shy away from it. Yeah. That was great. Yeah. Well, thank you. I just, yeah. why I, I, well, on my way here, actually, I was having some self-talk about why do I have such a hard time why do I have such a hard time with advice? I don't know. I, I'm uh-huh. working on that. I'll let yeah. you know. I, I do too. Like I like to have conversations with other people yeah. and ask them right. for advice. Yeah, but yeah, then yeah. when people ask me for advice, yeah. I'm like, why are you asking me? Yeah, right? Yeah, I, I yeah it's it's uncomfortable for me and yeah. I'm trying to figure out why. But Well, I think a charitable interpretation yeah. is it doesn't feel right to tell another person what they mm-hmm. should or they shouldn't do. Yeah. You know, that yeah. feels like a close cousin to taking someone's inventory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the tension mm-hmm. in the duality here mm-hmm. is that you've had a certain set of life experiences mm-hmm. right. that have taught you a few things that can be helpful mm-hmm. to others yeah. when imparted in the right way. Yeah. And you're a vehicle for that. Yeah. The book does it. It's not outright saying, mm-hmm. do this, don't do this, right. but it's saying, here is an experience, take from it what you will. And my hope is that this will improve your life or maybe give you a few things to think about mm-hmm. that can change your relationship with whatever your experience yeah. is. Yeah, But absolutely. it's doing it in, it's doing it, and this is like an AA thing. It's mm-hmm. like, we don't we don't tell people what to do. We don't give advice. We share our experience, right? Yeah. right? This book yeah. is you sharing your experience. Yeah. So you're comfortable doing that. Yeah, I'm very and, comfortable. And so I think that's, <laughs> healthy and maybe yeah. that's just because this is the way I see it too. And mm-hmm. I wanna feel like right. you know, we got it right. <laughs> that it's not a deficiency. Yeah, yeah. yeah. especially yeah, yeah, when yeah. you're online and you're scrolling on Instagram or whatever, and people are like looking to camera and they're telling you what to do. Yeah, There's something yeah. very powerful about yeah, that that absolutely. people respond to, Yeah, but it also makes me very, unco- mm-hmm. like, I, I don't think I'm the right person to be like that. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, and also, cause I believe so firmly that most truths are relative to, our own sure. personal experiences. Yeah. So who am I to say that this is No, my partner has cancer. What should right. I tell my kids? Yeah, well, There's a supposed lot of to people... be some general. I'm sure you get yeah, asked that question a lot, yeah. right? Yeah, I do. And I I don't respond because I or I just stammer through some kind of, you know, blanket statement because Nobody I Nobody wants to hear it depends. It depends. Yeah. <laughs> do what you think is right. I mean, mm. no, but I, I yeah, it's just everything. And part of what I write in my book is that truth is so, it's like a kaleidoscope. It's just a twist of the risk depending on your perspective and your experiences. And my truth has changed so much throughout my life. And again, me reading this book I wrote five years ago wouldn't have resonated. So I think I just have to understand and accept that my book, the this book isn't for everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... Who is it for? Well, really for me. And and the truth is... That's what an artist does. Yeah, I wrote it for me. And even now, reading it back, I see how a lot of what it will be criticized for is because I wrote it for me. And I, I didn't really think much about other people reading it. And actually, the night before it came out, I had a total meltdown because yeah. I was like, oh, shit, people it's are going to read it. But if you, yeah, if you had thought about that while you were writing, yeah. you would have edited yeah. yourself. You yeah. can't do that. Yeah, it's it, that's you know. true. And so I'm glad it is raw the way it is because that's what I ha- that's the story I had to tell myself mm-hmm. for myself. That was me making sense of my life for me. And if other people can gain something from that, great. But if not, then I just have to be okay with it being me bearing my soul for myself. Nothing great is for everybody. Yeah, let's well, yeah. You know. Yeah. 
it's a big world out there, yep. as Seth Godin says. Yeah, yeah. And my hope for you is that ten years from now, you'll revisit this book, you'll read it, and in in perfect non-duality yeah. <laughs> or du- a, a duality here, there'll be part of you who's really proud of mm-hmm. you for. Yep having the courage to tell this story and and being able to like recognize the beauty in it. And another part of you is gonna cringe and say, oh my God, yeah. I can't believe like they I wrote will. that. <laughs> I already right? know I will, cause yeah. I'm already starting to be like, wow, because I really did it. you have yeah. grown, yeah. you've continued to grow. Yeah. And and you're so you've transcended, you yeah. know, some of the ideas that you were struggling with when yeah. you wrote it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. yep, I hope that for me too. Yeah, <laughs> I guess as a final thing, is there, we covered a lot, but like, I guess I feel responsible in asking you, like, is there a core idea beyond what we've already discussed today that you were trying to express in this book that hmm. we didn't cover? I mean, I think we covered it just between the lines, but just self-acceptance. And 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 that was what I was really trying to do was accept myself throughout this book is is right for me a narrative that would allow myself to accept and make sense of all of the recklessness and all of the craziness and and accept it all as the beauty that makes me me now and mm-hmm. that that couldn't have happened had i not gone down all of the the dead ends that I thought were dead ends, which were really now looking at it, were probably like bridges to myself. Yeah. And and so really it's just that self-love and self-acceptance. Yeah. Again, it's that rear view thing. Mm-hmm. Like, well, when I went to Guatemala, you know, or all these things that probably in the moment you're like, why am I doing this? Or what am I doing yeah. with my life now seem integral yeah. in, you know, building the exactly. person that you are today. Yeah. I think the final thing I wanted to ask you also was that your relationship with shame, you know, coming mm-hmm. out of of the strictures of of a religious upbringing and and then being a, a rebel, right? Like mm-hmm. there there has to be some residue of like in that department of self love. The other side of that is like the deep shame and unworthiness yeah. because you're a bad person. That that seeking inside of you, like just tell me I'm a good person right. or how do I become a good person? Yeah. Absolutely. Is, is a shame is a response to that shame, right? An antidote to yeah. that. Yeah. I try really hard not to dwell in shame because shame is something I want my children to rarely feel. I know they can't come out unscathed, but shame is such a large part of Christianity, really. And I've seen how it it crippled me for a long time and a lot of the people that I love. And and I really try not to embody shame because I don't want my children, especially as three girls, um, to grow up and trying to emulate that. Um, I do think, I think it's Brene Brown that said the difference between guilt and shame and that guilt mm-hmm. is actually actionable. And, and I do have guilt. Like when I read my book back, I feel guilty for poor Jane and she was sober for six months and then she got drunk with me and I feel guilt for that. Um, and, And I think guilt is just taking responsibility, but shame I feel like is just a dead end. There's no purpose for shame. It's just, um, yeah, there's no actionable purpose for it. And so I I think I want to teach my kids the difference between those two. Yeah. I think the ripple to that is guilt. I think this is what Brene said. Guilt is 
an emotion around something you did mm-hmm. and shame is an emotion around who you are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But but in religion, they're so tightly they're, entwined. Right, right, I right. mean, you're taught that your actions are who who you are, you know, that drinking makes you a bad person in the Mormon religion. And, and you really are taught that and it's really ingrained. And so trying to separate those two, um, those two things being, you know, what I do isn't necessarily who I am. And I think that was also exemplified by that, um, the bishop who told me, you know, I hear you Mm -hmm. list off all of these quote unquote sins, but you're still a good person. And that right there, I think that's the split between, you know, action and what you do and, and what you, who you are, you are. exactly yeah. Yeah. and he wasn't exonerating you from taking no. responsibility for it yeah but he was distinguishing behavior from identity absolutely right? yeah 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 beautiful yeah i think we did it i think we did it <laughs> yeah. um the book is fantastic you're inspiring tommy is inspiring you together is is truly a you know one plus one equals ten <laughs> um equation uh, and uh, I just, you know, I wish you guys the best. And, Thank you. Um, Tommy's continued recovery, and I hope to see both of you yeah. in the future. Thank you. What's coming next for you? Are you into another book, or is it day to day going from the gut? <laughs> is it going to take ten years it's, for another uh, book? Well, who knows? I don't know. I'm. I am already. Of course, I already started writing another book, but it's not a memoir. Mm-hmm. It's not a memoir. It's a novel. So we'll see oh, where that novel. goes. Yeah, wow. I think I'm done with the no, the memoir. <laughs> yeah. Well, you. Get, I think you got out of a little bit more out. life. <laughs> you know, it's like one year later, I my know, next right? memoir. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but in the uh-huh. interim, yeah. And then also, like I said, just being, just learning just to be, and maybe it's okay not to have another project on the table. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. I can, you're like, your, your skin is crawling, you know, <laughs> like that, right? As somebody who lives out of their uh, gut instinct, mm-hmm. you should be okay with that. I will. I will yeah. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Right. We'll just see. Well, absolute delight and pleasure <laughs> Thank you. To talk Thank to you, you so, much. so yeah. much. Everybody pick up the book, everything all at once. At your favorite bookseller, independent <laughs> bookstores, hopefully, if not yep, Amazon. Yep. They should be or everywhere. Your website. Yep. I'll link up all that stuff in the show notes and uh, come back and yep. talk to me again sometime. Awesome. Thank cool. you so much. Cheers. Peace. <laughs> That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com, where you can find the entire podcast archive, as well as podcast merch, my books, Finding Ultra, Voice of Change, and the Plant Power Way, as well as the Plant Power Meal Planner at meals.richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube, and leave a review and or comment. Supporting the sponsors who support the show is also important and appreciated, and sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is, of course, awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner, and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Kale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davey Greenberg. Graphic and social media assets courtesy of Daniel Solis. 
Thank you, Georgia Whaley, for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love. Love the support. See you back here soon. Peace. Plants. Namaste.